Welcome back to another episode of Sworn Testimonies. On this episode, I interview award-winning songwriter Maurice Fonson. He's actually one of the winners of NBC's Songland last year, and the song he wrote was number one on three different Billboard charts. We have a great conversation about what it's like to be a black man who writes pop music. Stay tuned. Just be honest. 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 Just be real. Just be true. It's the only way to be free. Just be honest. It's the only way to be. Just be real. Just be true. It's the only way to be. Maurice, I'm so honored to have you today. I've heard so many great things about you from so many different people. Can you tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and what you do for a living? Sure. Uh, my name is Maurice Matthew Funson. Uh, I am a Grammy-nominated songwriter and a vocal producer and also recording artist. Uh, I also started my own entertainment company called SCG, which is a multimedia entertainment company where we develop talent, develop songwriters, sign other acts, sign other songwriters and producers, um, as well as distribution, as well as uh, music supervision for television. See, being a songwriter sounds like one of those jobs, like being a fairy or something. How do you fall into Hmm. songwriting? How did that happen? Um, I mean, you know, I to go a little further back uh, in my history, you know, I was a band geek. You know what I mean? I always loved music. I always sang. Um, I just loved music. And when I was in college, um, I was in a band. With, I went to college in, at Xavier University of Louisiana in New Orleans. And historically black college, and I was actually in college for pharmacy. I was a pharmacy major, but I really wanted to do music, and so I started a band with my roommate sophomore year, and it was uh, we we would play around New Orleans and gig and stuff like that. And uh, when they decided they wanted to go a different direction, and I started to just really focus in on my own solo career as an artist. Uh, I had people writing songs for me, and to be honest with you, the shit just sucked. You know, the songs that people were sending me or giving me, I hated them. You know, they just weren't good. And I said, you know, I've been a creative person all my life. I love creative writing as a child. Let me give it a try, writing my own song. Um, so uh, it was, it wasn't the best <laughs> in the beginning, obviously, but you know, you had, you know, practice makes perfect. So I just kept going and kept going. And I eventually just honed my skills as a songwriter. And I began to, like, write songs for other people as well, you know. So that's how I kind of fell into songwriting. And uh, I decided after college um, to move to uh, New York City and really pursue it professionally. And uh, that's where the journey really began. Did your parents express any type of uh, reservations about you jumping into a creative career and being able to like pay your bills and all of that? Oh, hell yeah. My mother was like, (laughs) my mother did not support me in the beginning, Um, which is funny because, you know, I come from all my uncles, may they rest in peace. Um, Two of them uh, were alive at that time when I started doing music. Uh, but when they were teenagers and in their early 20s, they all did music. They were in a band with their two high school classmates, and they sang around the city of Chicago. So uh, I don't know why my mother was so surprised that uh, I decided to go that way. I mean, she I played saxophone when I was a child. You know, I played saxophone for six years, from the age of 12 to 18. and I was in choirs, I was in marching band. So I, I don't understand why she was so shocked that I decided to pursue a music career because the writing was on the wall. But um, now she's she come around. She's definitely come around. Uh, I relate to that so much. I have kind of like always been a writer since, you know, okay. I was very, very young. I was like writing books and stories 
but my mom was still kind of like she couldn't believe the fact that I wanted to kind of pursue writing like full time and I was like but I've been doing this my whole life (laughs) you know I think I think definitely in the black community especially I think you know because everybody wants their children and the generation that they gave birth to to do better than them so they always push that narrative of like you either gonna be a doctor or a lawyer or if you play sports you're gonna play football or basketball right so like no one ever encourages the arts no one ever encourages uh you know creative writing or, or writing or being a novelist or being a you know um someone who might want to write tv scripts you know i mean no one i think that's the problem in a black community especially children who grew up in the 80s and the 90s you know what i mean so um i think the narrative is changing now with the new generation you know their parents that are our age or um a little bit older than us that they've had kids and now their children are showing the signs of doing something quote unquote outside the box and you know they support it yeah i love that i was listening to a td jake sermon and he was like when your child shows any sort of interest or gifting early on, like encourage that gift, like water that seed and help that seed grow. Like don't force them into another box, just water that seed, you know? Exactly. And so you mentioned that you moved to New York to pursue songwriting like full time. What does a, what what is like a first songwriting job look like? Like when were you like, oh, this is, this is what my profession is going to be. Well, I mean, I feel, I feel like, I mean, let's, let's, let me explain my, my journey in New York. It wasn't, I knew what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how I was going to get to that point. So, you know, I took any gig that anybody on Craigslist was looking for a songwriter, you know, any demo singer, any project. Um, on any uh, boards at NYC, NYU uh, School of Music. Um, I, I, when I moved to New York, I was, I worked my very first job, job. I had a job job. So I worked for a nonprofit organization. So by day, I was doing that. By night, I was running around studios in New York and Manhattan and Brooklyn and smoked out places, can't see and like a horrible track <laughs> the hardest thing for whatever the case may be so I, I can't remember exactly what my first gig was uh when I moved to New York but I do remember taking many sessions from people who were like um Craigslist people or like um my very first manager was somebody who I, I randomly met and you know he had he was he was about i think at the time he was like 15 years older than me so he had already had his quote-unquote time in the music industry and he was still holding on but he had a group and they were his, they were his cousins and it's it's funny how uh, each member of the group they all had their own little ingenue a protege that they were mentoring so like they introduced me to uh their artists that they were developing so i built those relationships with those people so we became a family and uh those two people one of them particularly used to be a good friend of mine um we were all like in the business like we were like in the business in the sense of like we were trying to be in the business. So like we were the mentees of people like Benny Medina and uh, Emil Wilburn, you know, who used to be the, uh, the former editor-in-chief of I Magazine, you know, Derek Thompson. So like all these powerful uh, black music executives in New York, and they all had their, their little writer that they were developing. So all of us became like a crew. Got to know each other, and that turned into 
really getting in the door and working with like well-known artists. Coming from like a very traditional, I guess like nine to five family. And I think a lot of other people when they jump into creative careers, they think, all right, I'm gonna go online and I'm going to apply for a songwriting job or I'm going to apply for a writing job or whatever. And, you know, it's really not like that in the industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but you really have to hustle and find your own clients, build your own career. Yes, yes, it was was a network. It was was a lot of hustling. Um, I remember one of the guys who was in our little crew his name was uh I'm his name I'm drawing a blank right now. But he was an artist and he was signed to Universal Motown. And so that was for real like the first time I had a chance to write for an artist who just so happened to be a part of the crew. You know what I mean? But it was it that was, you know, this person led to this person, that person led to this person. There was no like, let me type in songwriter, Google, bam. Oh, job application. You know, it's not, it definitely doesn't work like that. I know we've talked a little bit uh, about the type of music that you write, uh, but you can you kind of explain, you know, like what genres you're interested in or what genres you find yourself writing or even enjoy writing? Um, you know, I, because I, I, I'm a fan of music as a whole, um, I love to write all different types of genres. You know, I credit my high school band uh, education uh, to opening up my ears to different styles of music. You know, as a marching band, I was I played tennis saxophone in the marching band, so I had to learn box chorales and jazz pieces and country music and standard um, American classics and pop and, and all these different types of, and jazz. I the jazz band so like it opened me up to so many different genres that by the time I became a songwriter I ate it up I loved it all you know what I mean I'm this little black boy from the west side of Chicago and you know I was the weirdo because I could listen to some Mary J Blige one second and then bump you know Biggie next second second but then turn around and fucking love with Shania Twain song you know what I mean so like I was I, I've always loved all genres so I tried to always write in those genres because I felt like my spirit um, never liked to be boxed in. You know, um, I never wanted to be confound, confined, I'm sorry, to one type of genre just because I'm black. You know what I mean? There's, there's so many different types of black people. So why do I have to just write one genre? You know? I, I love, to the core, obviously, because I'm black, <laughs> I love soul music, but uh, and R and B. But you know, uh, I just prior to us starting this interview, I was just working on um, a record that I turned into publisher for the City Girls. They're working on their next album. And then, like last night, I was writing a hook for Machine Gun Kelly. You know, it's a white rapper, so like I'm I stay in the sense of like being uh, influenced by so many different things by that literally every day I can literally change up the genre. And for me, that keeps it fresh, that keeps it exciting, that keeps it, um, it keeps it uh, intriguing, you know what I mean? Um, I truly, I, I don't, I don't have a specific genre, you know, um, to kind of piggyback off your question, uh, and it's, it's so weird talking about myself sometimes, but uh, last fall- Well, you're doing a great job. You're doing a great job. <laughs> I appreciate that. But uh, last fall, um, a friend of mine, she uh, wanted to go on the show Songland. Actually, it was, it was last, not last fall, it was last, it was the winter of 2018. And so I I had applied for that. Let me backtrack. That show had came to me three different times while they were in pre-production over the course of two and a half years, and I said no. Like I didn't want to do it because the format of the show 
I didn't like the format. So I wasn't going to do it. So my friend, her name is Rosie. Uh, she was like, hey, I want to go on Songland, this new show on NBC. I was like, all right, cool. She's like, I want to use the song and grow together. All right, bet. It was a ballad. It was a pop R&B ballad. And so she went on the show. The show was taped in the spring, the late winter spring of 2019. And uh, our episode, uh, the, the guest artist, recording artist, was Leona Lewis, and um, Ryan Tedder of One Republic ended up being, who's one of the judges on the show, he ended up being um, our mentor for the episode, and he mentored our record, and he decided he wanted to change it to a Latin pop record. And, you know, I I, I was already contractually obligated by NBC. I said to like, oh, I don't know about this. And, you know, it's Ryan Tedder. So who's going to say no to Ryan Tedder, right? You know what I'm saying? Um, We just was like, okay, you know, Ryan's a hit maker. He knows what he's doing. And come to find out that song and that spirit of that song resonated with Leona Lewis because her father was Guyanese. So she grew up in Afro-Caribbean, Afro-Latino, Afro-Latin culture. So it spoke to her. And we won. And we won our episode. We won our episode, and they decided to throw in Colleen and Dandy, who co-wrote Despacito um, and Juan McGowan on the record, and it became this massive Latin pop record. And it went number one last fall on three different billboard charts. So, uh, I I mean, I was shocked. I was, I was just happy and blessed to get the placement, let alone... I, I got my first Billboard number one, you know, number one record. So, and it was a Latin song. So you never know, you know. I just, I just rolled the punches, man. Wow, I, uh, I love that story so much because I think it is so important as a creative too to just be open and flexible. And sometimes we get so attached to what we're creating. But when people mm-hmm. suggest changes, it can feel like death. Like, why are you telling me to change my art? Uh, but exactly. It really, exactly. Uh, it's, it's so important. And I'm, I'm glad that you all were able to do that. Um, what has it been like for you being a Black songwriter who doesn't just work with Black music? Ooh. Okay. Mm. That experience has been been two tiers to that experience. Um, the first tier, I would say, is actually three tiers. The first tier of that is when I used to live in New York, I feel like there was there was an openness to that to that concept. You know what I mean? There was an openness to the fact that I was a black guy writing these pop records. You know what I mean? Um, because, you know, if we're going to keep it all the way funky, white people swagger jack our culture all the time. You know what I mean? They run to us for what's hot and what's, you know, what's trendy. So it only makes sense, right, that we would have a lot of black songwriters writing pop records. But in actuality, that's not the case. You know, you might have them producing the music, but as far as writing the lyrics and melody, you know, a lot of times I stepped into those rooms, you know, and I was the only black guy. You know what I mean? Like, um, there's a a friend of mine, he's a mentor and a friend. He's, he's an amazing songwriter. His name is Claude Kelly. And Claude wrote some of the biggest pop records of the last 15, 20 years. Like, he wrote, you know, Circus for Britney Spears. He wrote Domino for Jesse J. You know what I mean? He's written for Akon, Michael Jackson. And he is a black songwriter. So I looked up to him. He nurtured me and he 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 mentored me like the early years of me living in New York City. And it was great. You know, I was I was in these rooms and I was becoming a strong songwriter. So at first it was fine. Um then comes tier number two, <laughs> which is kind of goes into tier number three. You know, I'm evolving as a writer. I'm getting into these rooms, and I'm in these writing camps, 
And I think the trouble that I saw did not exist until I moved here to Los Angeles five years ago. Um, Los Angeles is a hella quickish city. Um, I was born in Chicago, but I feel connected to New York. I spent a long time in New York. Um, and even though they say New Yorkers are rude, I don't, I don't see that. I felt welcomed. Um, I can't necessarily say I, I felt welcomed living here in the city. You know, um, I haven't felt welcomed by other producers who are, who happen to be white or another race uh, or other writers. And, you know, I might get in trouble for saying this <laughs> when, when it comes out, but this is just how I feel, you know. Um, I, I, I haven't even been, I don't even, you know, we can talk about that more later, but I haven't even felt welcome and connected to other black songwriters who are in these circles here in LA who are doing pop music. Um, I think with tier number two and tier number three, they're, they're already clickish, but also there's an assumption, right? Because like, I'm 6'3", and I'm 240 pounds. So like, I'm this big, tall black guy, and there's an automatic assumption that, oh, you must do hip hop. You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, why Why are you judging me off of my appearance that before I even open my mouth that I do hip hop? Because if you really paid attention to my discography and you see my placements and, you, you know, you see even my last placement, clearly I don't do just hip hop. You know what I mean? Um, so that's, that's uh, a, the biggest problem that I've ran into here living in Los Angeles is just like it's been hard, it's been frustrating, it feels isolating, it feels um, like I'm never good enough. I've fought with that in my head and in my spirit over the last few years living here in LA. And uh, sometimes I want to just give up, but I don't because I know that this is my destiny and I feel like God is giving me a gift and be, I would be a fool miss to like not tap into the thing that that makes me me, regardless of how hard it is. You know what I'm saying? I thank you so much for sharing that vulnerably. And you're right, there's there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, but just going through the world as a big black man and all of the assumptions that people you know, must be making about you. And people will say, you know, how do you know I'm making assumptions? You can tell the way that people look at you, the way that they treat you, the subtleties. Um, it's not feeling welcome is a very real, um, it's a very real feeling. So, yes. you know, the the name of my book, Therapy is just, Therapy is not just for white people. How do you deal with that, like the mental health aspect of it and like taking care of yourself, like working in an industry where you don't always feel welcome just because of who you are? Um, well, first of all, by the way, that title was amazing. <laughs> Your book, that is an amazing title. Um, that's some real shit. Um, I don't, you know, I've, I guess that's a whole, we can have a whole nother podcast episode about that. But like, I've dealt with depression. I've dealt with that um, twice, once uh, at the beginning of my 20s because I was, I felt trapped um, because I had, going back to what we originally talked about, you know, Stepping outside the box when your parents want you to do one thing, you really want to do something else. Um, and that was a dark year. You know, that was like my last year, my fifth and final year in college. Um, so that being that depressed and wanting to end it all because I couldn't do what I love to do, I made sure that, you know, once I was thankful to God that I actually came out of that, that 
that I would never allow myself to go there again. You know what I mean? So it's a fight to stay happy. You know, that was a long time ago. But, you know, there's definitely triggers that I've come across in my life that take me there. Um, the second time it happened, the depression, was it was a relationship. So um, that was like the first time I was really in love. And when that was over, you know, I couldn't write a song for like a year and a half. Like I was no good. Like I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, so even coming out of that, once again, knowing uh, what not to do, or should I say knowing the types of energies and things that I don't need in my life, I try to keep that in the forefront of my brain and my spirit to allow me to stay happy, to allow me to push through on those days when, like, I just don't feel it and I feel defeated by the world because, you know, there's an assumption, especially, I don't know why people assume this about me because I'm a very happy and jovial person, you know what I mean? I think people see me smile and laugh. They really don't know what's really going on inside. You know what I mean? Like, you know, uh, I had a rough year last year, not to the point where I slipped back into having a depressed state, but, you know, um, it definitely was fucking with my mental health, for sure. But I had to just step back, uh, allow for maybe weeks of self-care, um, stopping work and saying, you know what, I'm never going to be good for my art and my craft if I don't take care of myself. Um, I'm, you know, I think there, if you're truly tapping into your art, uh, there is a little bit of a sadomasochist attitude for us songwriters. Like, we want pleasure, we want pain, because that gives us something to write about. And I get that. I mean, I'm, I'm a total... Uh, advocated that I do that myself, but there is when there is a point when you go too far with that. So be it with family, be it with love, you know, whoever your loved ones, your partner, your husband, your wife, significant other, your your friends, even the the actual business itself. Like sometimes you just have to say stop. Enough is enough. This isn't good for me. This is not going to benefit me. And yes, we have to do things sometimes that are not uh, comfortable, but when they start to affect your mental health, you have to learn how to say no. So I'm practicing learning how to say no. I'm practicing learning how to say, take, take more care of myself. You know what I mean? Well, that's so important. Learning how to say no is so liberating. And I think it's something that a lot of people are really bad at. We say yes, then that yes is attached to resentment. And then not only do we, you know, feel some type of way on the inside, we might start mm-hmm. to feel some type of way about, about the person who asked us. And it's only because mm-hmm. we didn't have the courage to say no. Yep. 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 And then it's like, we, if you had the courage to say no, just think of how much time you would have saved, how much energy you would have saved, how much headache, headache you would have avoided. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, Everything ain't for everybody, you know. It's um, really not. You know, I'm I'm saying I'm saying yes to certain things, like as cliche as like sounds like say yes to year of yes, like Sean Ryan says. Yes, you can say yes to certain things, but within reason. Like you can't say yes to everything because everything ain't good for you. You know what I mean? Step back, think about it. Does it make sense? Does it benefit you? Does it benefit them more? Then you can make a decision. You know what I mean? But don't waste your time on things and people and places and energies that are not going to be helpful for your mental health or your finances. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, that's it. yeah. Facts. Facts. Um, I want to talk a little bit more, too, about you just kind of trying to find your fitting and and um, footing and fit in here in LA in the songwriting community. Do you feel like you find yourself having to like code switch or turn on and turn off pieces of who you are kind of navigate different circles? Oh yeah, absolutely. 
you know, um, I've learned that I definitely can't give everybody all of me. You know what I mean? I have to give this up. You know, I've been told that I'm intense, but that might be the New Yorker in me because L.A. is so laid back and chill. It's like, no, motherfucker, like 7 p.m. actually means 7 p.m. to me, not 9 p.m. You know what I mean? Like, when you say you're going to call, call. When you say you're going to email, email. I'm going to do what I need to do. So I feel like I haven't always fit in because I have to play certain roles with certain people. You know, I never try to be fake. I always try to be authentic. But I can't give everybody everything. And so it's 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 been hard, you know, um if we can if I if I'm I'm allowed to talk about this, like, you know, uh the drug culture here in Los Angeles is like nothing I've ever seen before. You know, like you, you hear the whole you know, uh, saying of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Like, that's real. You know, not to say that that wasn't, that didn't exist in New York or when I would travel to, like, Miami or Atlanta for work. But here it's like, you know, I've been to places where cocaine is literally like candy on a platter at a party. You know what I mean? Or um, marijuana, like, I mean, I'm on, I, I can't lie. I, I gave into that. But, you know, I never smoked weed until I moved to L.A. Five years ago. <laughs> so it was like, and then, like, I felt like people looked at me like I was a weirdo in certain sessions because I decided to stay sober. You know, I didn't drink. I didn't do lean. Or I didn't, you know, coke up. Or I didn't smoke the weed. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that also took me out of a lot of situations because some people like to party and play or party and hang party and create with certain people and that's the vibe in the room and it's like my god like i my mind is so rapid fire like, i don't need them i don't need things to keep to get me there like i got a million stories within me of all the things that i've gone through and my amazing and my imagination is on point and i sometimes write about things that my friends are going through so i don't need drugs to take me there you know, so that pushed me out of a lot of rooms too, being a creator here. You know, um, and even when I gave in to the whole marijuana thing, I still never did it in a um, professional setting. Like, I can like chill with friends and I'm in a safe space, but I'm never will ever smoke weed in a recording session. I will never smoke weed or get lit like that in a writing session. And if I do, somebody does have liquor in the session, you know, um, I wait until I'm three-fourths done with the record before I take the drink. You know what I mean? I'm in the zone. I like to stay in the zone. And I feel like sometimes that has pushed me out of a lot of clicks and a lot of circles, and that hasn't allowed me to sit in the way I need to because it's a a social game here in L.A. when it comes to the entertainment industry. You know, it's not even about sometimes the talent. It's about who you know who fucks with you and who they fuck with. Listen, I resonate with you on so many levels, even when we had, you know, the conversation the other day, like the miscommunication about the time. And I was like, I don't miss calls. Uh, but that's because <laughs> being out here, being out here in LA, like I'm very much the same way. Like if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I had to learn that when people say like, oh yeah, for sure, let's do it. That's like a 50-50. Like we might yeah. do it or we might yeah. not. Like I might show up yeah. or I might not. Uh, which can, yeah. And it's it's validating too to hear you talk about uh, your experience with just like alcohol and drugs and weed because I like, I'm also a person where I don't need nothing to like make me crazy, to make me imaginative, to make me hyper, mm-hmm. to make me full of life. Like I'm like that very much naturally, but you know, when you have so many people in your circles who are trying to convince you sometimes, like if you right. take this drug, this weed, this LSD, you'll it'll unlock you to another level. Right. You'll, you know, have this right. spiritual awakening. And I'd be like, I feel like I'm pretty woke right now though. So yeah. like who needs that? Like that's cool for you, bro, but like I'm good. You know, I'm in my yeah. head all the time. I don't need anything to take me actually over the edge. I, you know, like, I don't, you know, I, you know, I, I've done, like, edibles and, like, 
you know, I've done too many edibles before, but like I was personally in my own personal space. But I know that the things that have happened to me aren't good things. So I know I would never want that to happen in a recording session or a writing session. So like I don't need any stimulant to to get me there. You feel me? Like we're good. <laughs> like I'm actually happy. I'm, if you want a sad song, meet me in your emotions. Trust me, I got enough shit that has happened to me in my life to give, to take you there. Like I don't need, you know, any any mollies, any ex, any weed, any coke, any types of drugs. You know what I'm saying? To take, you know, take you there. And you know, especially I think being a bigger black man and working with, you know, artists of all colors and. Uh, genders, you know, I can imagine just like keeping it 100, being in a room with, you know, a woman who you may not know well, that well, black or white, and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's drinking that's going on or whatever. And next thing you know, people are accusing you, oh, he was coming on to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not going to be that woman. That's never like, you ain't gonna have to ever like, oh, we were drunk. No, you were drunk, and I left at twelve o'clock. And you talking about it happened at two in the morning. So get out of here. Like, like that's that won't ever happen to me. That won't, because I don't want to ever put myself in that predicament. You know what I mean? It's um, interesting. I actually um, met Lionel Richie at one of his parties last year. This year, I don't know. Twenty twenty has been kind of a wash. I think it was this year. And we were having a conversation about just art and creating. And he was telling me like, you know, so many artists from my time, like you'll notice now that they don't create anymore or they became addicts and they fell off. The only reason I've been able to kind of maintain is because I didn't do none of that. And I always left at like midnight. Like I would come, I would have a good time, but I never wanted to be the person who was like, in the news for like drugs or something happening with like a young yep. lady or whatever. Yep. And I always felt that pressure. And he's like, people used to make fun of me, but you know, I'm older and I'm still working. So yep. I that really, yeah, that was a really cool thing. I think that, I think when you allow yourself to just let the art flow you without those things, then you'll be fine. You know, but it's, this this it's hard. Like, you know, um, I'm sure he's Lionel Richie. I'm sure he had a lot of pressure. You know what I'm saying? So little old me, you know, yeah, it's 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 insane, man. It's it's, it's truly insane. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more too, just about the whole Me Too culture and being a black man, and in the wake of you know Bill Cosby, and just I, I can imagine we we do talk a lot, and understandably and rightfully so about women and how they should and can you know just protect themselves from Mm -hmm. from men or from people who take advantage of them being in the entertainment industry you know that that kind of stuff runs rampant here as a black Mm -hmm. man how do you how do you protect yourself um it kind of goes back to what i was saying before you know uh, i don't allow myself to i try to minimize my time and exposure to situations where those things could come up and they're called into question you know um it kind of also ties back into another i was going to say it before when we were talking about the drug use in the community um i can't i I don't want to say a name but uh it was an artist who let's just say he was he's on love and hip-hop i'm not even gonna say which one (laughs) <laughs> but he's on love and hip hop. And like when I tell you the shit that I saw in that session, in a couple of those sessions, it was definitely a Me Too uh lawsuit waiting to happen. You know what I mean? It's like two women and it's like twelve of us in a room in a studio and it's three o'clock in the morning. And it's nothing but uh, literally um, candy jars of, like, the weed buds and, like, molly. It's, like, literal. Like, I've never seen anything like that before. Like, it was, like, little a little tall glass candy jar, cookie jar, I'm sorry, and it was filled with molly. 
And I was just like, wow. And like these women were in the room and one of them uh, started doing things in the corner with somebody else. And, and the other one was just like chilling and she's just sitting there. And it's just like, damn, you know what I mean? Like, y'all, y'all crazy. Like, this is crazy. Like, this is very easily somebody I could call rape. You know what I mean? In the situation. Um, two against 12, that's not a good look. At three o'clock in the morning, not a good look. Um, I got out of there as soon as I could. <laughs> when that started going down in the corner, I was like, yeah, I'm out of here, man. You know, everybody's getting off on seeing that and excited. But I was like, yeah, I, this isn't good. You know what I mean? I don't want to be in this room. So I left. Um, that's how I, I, I you know, I, I pull myself out of things like that. You know, I try to always be respectful of women. You know, I grew up in a house full of women. Like, you know, my father left. We left, should I say, we left our father, my father when I was nine. So I grew up with my grandmother and my aunt my mother and I had a sister. Um so I have respect for women in a way that is uh very uh I think unique but it's not as unique because a lot of people who grew up in a house full of women but um those women that were in that room that's somebody's daughter, that's somebody's sister, that's somebody's auntie, that could be somebody's mama, you know what I mean? Um you just gotta have respect for that. You know, I don't I don't wanna ever get caught up in that. You know, I always uh uh I used to work I to this day I still do. I have I work with a lot of female singers and they're demo singers and they're up and coming. And I always try to be like, yo, you can bring your home girl or one of your best friends, or if you got your boyfriend, you know, bring your boyfriend. Because y'all not gonna call me out later on talking about oh it was me and him in the studio. Like that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> right <laughs> like that's not that's not gonna happen like and I, I i get it like i've worked with girls and they feel uneasy because they've been in other situations and they like think i'm trying to hit and i'm like nah we good like i just need this record baby girl like just sing that's all you do just sing i don't care about nothing else and uh, nah we good but if you feel uncomfortable bring your home girl or bring your boyfriend and you'll see like i'm just about this work you know what i mean so let's get this work you know what I mean? Like I don't, I don't allow. I never, I never eat and shit in the same place. Like I never like, like work is work and that's it. You know what I mean? Oh, I I feel that one hundred and ten percent. Um, and you know, I think it's important for young artists and creators and really just any industry that you're working in to remember. A part of being successful, yes, is mastering, honing your craft and hustling. Mm -hmm. But another part is really just exercising wisdom because your dysfunctions could literally keep you from walking through a, God, a door that God has for you because you haven't dealt with, you know, just how you treat women or, mm -hmm. you know, not to like bringing up Chris Brown. I seriously think he could have been one of the best artists of our time. Um, Absolutely. And, you know, and we're all human. That's not to be self-righteous or to say that we don't, you and I don't have dysfunctions, um, but to be, you know, aware of them and to really be doing that self-work to make sure that you can actually sustain whatever blessings God has for you when it's time to walk through that door. Absolutely. Because I feel like if we understand where we come from, then we should be better at understanding where we're going. Like, if you brought up Chris, and that's a perfect example. I mean, Chris was a product of domestic violence. You know what I mean? His father against his mother. You know what I mean? He says that in the interview. So it's kind of crazy that what happened with him and Rihanna happened. You know what I mean? So it's like, you just perpetuated the cycle. And, you know, nobody's perfect, but, you know, even his behavior after the situation, you know, that, you know, Chris was at at the top. Like he was doing double mint commercials, and you know what I mean. Like all that, he was it. Like he was on some Michael Jackson status. Next, he was next. You know what I mean on the way to that. But you know, he's bounced back. But he's kind of turned his whole thing into the image of being the bad boy. You know what I mean? And that you know, for some girls, 
that works. You know, some girls are like, oh, he can beat me anytime. I'd be like, what? That sounds, you're crazy, girl. Like, you are crazy. But, you know, like, he's still doing his thing. But, like, we have to be, we have to be, we have to be better. You know, and we have to do better. You know what I mean? And it's like understanding, especially as black artists, as, as black creators, you know, we have to work twice as hard to get half of what they have. You know what I'm saying? Like, so we ain't got the luxury for somebody to call rape, call me to murder somebody, get in trouble, all types of other things. Have, like, you, you know, um, we can't go, our black kids don't go to rehab. You know what I mean? Uh, when so true. We when when they when they when we have issues, you know, we want to just pray it away. You know what I mean? Like no, like sometimes you might need to go talk to somebody. You know, and that's you know these are things that are perpetuated in the black community. And when it comes to especially in my field, you know, uh, uh, there are people who are handlers who sweep things under the rug from these artists. And there's so, many, there's so many problems with a lot of black entertainers and creators and producers that you'll never know. You know what I mean? Because we don't want to talk about it. Um, because it's, especially as black men, you know, it's a sign of weakness to talk about your emotions and talk about your feelings. Oh, that means you're soft, you're punk, or blah, 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 blah. Like, nah, like, you have, like, if anything, the more you keep it bottled up, the more you're just going to explode later on. That's such a great point. Um, and on the point of, you know, masculinity and in a lot of cases, toxic masculinity, how mm-hmm. do you kind of navigate being in a world that tells you you can't talk about your emotions, you can't cry, you shouldn't be depressed, uh, with also being a songwriter who's having to, you know, dive into and, you know, really re-experience probably a lot of hurtful and sad emotions in order to create. Well, you know, I've what makes it very interesting um being a black male writing these pop records in particular when it comes to showing vulnerability. I was telling somebody else the other day, I actually prefer to write for women because a man, particularly a black man in the in in music they're they're boxed in by their masculinity right so we can't talk about certain things we always have to be uh the fighter or the hypersexualized lover we but we can't be nothing in between (laughs) so it's like but when you write for women you know what i mean pardon my french you can be a sex kitten you can be a bitch you can be a maverick you can be vulnerable you can be the powerful woman you can be you can be broken hearted you can be strong you can be quote unquote fierce and go out for the night like you there's so many things that a woman can be so therefore a woman can say it so it allows me to channel emotions or thoughts that might be quote unquote too soft and then of course i judge it up if i'm working with other writers and stuff like that and giving it more of a twist because it's a female perspective but it allows all the things for me to say that I want to say to come out. You know what I mean? Um, writing for men is boring. I'm not even going to lie. Like, it's, it's just boring, uh, especially black men. Like, I remember, uh, I'm going to, once again, it's, <laughs> I can't say another name, but I'm just going to say, you know, uh, a, a, mm, a young, he's not so young anymore, but he he is a black male R&B singer who all he talked about was sex and took his shirt off at every chance. And I think you know who I'm talking about, right? I mean, I have a million different R&B singers running through my mind who fits that description. So I may or may but, not know I mean, I mean, like, you know, like you know, the neighbors knew his name. You know what I'm saying? Like, stuff like that. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got you. I got you. Okay, so, right. So, like, his camp is, is like, is working with his camp. I've I've ridden for his camp several times, and it's just like a headache, and, like, 
that's a that's a that's a project that has eluded me because like they don't want to break the box like they he it's like he stayed in this one spot and i think this is just my opinion who am i but i mean his popularity now kind of shows what i'm about to say like i think people have become tired of his music because he it was the same song over and over and over and over again you know what i mean because he he didn't get too emotional you know what i mean and when he did become emotional those are some of his best records so why not give you that like you know everybody's chasing after usher's confession so hey dude why don't you take the hint and give your own confession you know what i mean like be that's such a great point because i um i know a lot of black men who love music like confessions but will still say things like i'm not gonna cry that's gay and i'm like gay. like what how 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 is it that you can allow somebody else to express and experience you know the pieces of themselves that they might be afraid of but you don't allow yourself to do the same and again i am not a man so I can't even imagine what the pressure must be like mm-hmm. to, mm-hmm. you know, fit this masculine, hard mm-hmm. stereotype. What message or or what would you say to men who are kind of afraid to face that part of themselves? I mean, that's so crazy, like, to even say, like, you know, oh, that's gay to cry. Because in the dictionary, I don't see that by a definition of all being gay. Like, that's not. I think that, I think that. <laughs> I think people have created their stereotypes of what homosexuality is and what a gay man is, and they think it's vulnerable, and they think it's like, you know, you're flaming out and you're queening out and the feminine and all those things that are things that are definitions of femininity, they've attached to homosexuality. So therefore, emotional is being one of those things. So you can't cry, you can't express how you feel, you can't say this, you can't do that. But in reality, it makes you more of a man if you do. Because regardless of if you're a man or a woman, you're still a human. And you still have to deal with your emotions. And you still have to process your emotions. You know what I mean? Um, I get it. Some women like, oh, he might be a little too soft. Uh, okay, that's another conversation for another day. But most most women want a man that can at least be somewhat sensitive. You know what I mean? Not so hardcore and like, you know, uh, DMX out attitude all the time. Like you can't be like that. That's just like even that's not even DMX cried. You know what I mean? On this, on the whole, Ayana fixed my life. Like he broke down because he's been through some things and he's put on this 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 mask, this shield, right? And we as black men in particular, we do that because we were taught like, hey, buck up, you don't cry. Boys don't cry, yada, yada, yada. You know what I mean? So it's, for me personally, I think that it's a stupidity, it's ignorance. Uh, I think the older you get, the more you understand your life and that you have to express your emotions, you have to express your feelings. Um, it allows the best parts of you to actually come out. Uh, it's always allowed the best parts of me to come out. Um, I've never held back in my emotions like you know and that maybe that's because i was the kid that was always talkative and always social so i said exactly how i felt or i showed you how i felt um i never i never was a shrinking violet so i can't necessarily say that i've held on to emotions i can say that i haven't because i because i understand the game um there are times where I hold back in my creativity for certain artists because of toxic masculinity. So you're not going to get that record. But I'm going to give that record to somebody like a Usher who will say how he feels, who gave you a whole album called Confessions that went from being uh, com- committing adultery, creating a baby, being sad about it, having fun, let's go out, let's party, you know what I mean? But coming back to let's make love, and he ran the whole gambit of emotions. And last time I checked, that was the most, one of the most, like, 23 million sold. <laughs> so it's like, okay, yeah. you know, I think the emotional is okay, you know what I mean? So it's like, 
hey, you know, let's tap into that. You know, let's just be who we need to be. You know what I mean? That would be the best part of myself. No, that's so good. Um, and, you know, that's also a whole nother topic, like homeless fear of homosexuality in the black male community. And so I'm glad you kind of, you know, pointed that out because I think it's it's really sad that we attribute feminine traits as being negative and weak or perceived mm-hmm. feminine traits. And it really goes back to the way, you know, the world feels about women. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I love that you kind of have this platform where you can encourage men to kind of share and help shape the narrative around masculinity and what masculinity looks like. And, you know, we mentioned with Chris Brown, a lot of his dysfunction probably came from what he saw growing up. Did you feel Mm -hmm. like your parents or your father in particular kind of encouraged you to, you know, be emotional and have emotions or was that a struggle Mm -mm. for you growing up? Mm -mm. Actually, the quite opposite. I didn't, he was abusive. You know, he he was abusive physically and verbally um, and mentally towards my mother, myself, and my sister. So I can't, that that definitely wasn't the case. You know, I'm, my mother's Black American and my father's West African. So he's like, you know, boys got to be tough, you know. So it was the exact opposite, you know. Um, but how can we be tough when you are literally beating the shit out of my mother and my, and, you know, and us? So like, that's, that's, that was like, as a child, um, we hid from the outside world what was going on inside the house. But th- th- my father definitely didn't encourage that. That just, that was just, I'm just that person. That's just who I, that's how I always was. I was born this way. I've always been uh, expressive and emotional. Um, I think, though, in my adult life, I've taken, I flipped that. You know, because he had his own problems and he didn't know how to express them, I think subconsciously that's what I'm doing with my music. I mean, even uh, my name, my artist name is Maurice, but my birth name is Matthew. My first name is Matthew. Like Maurice was my father's name. So I'm, I took his name, and that was my middle name too, but I took his name and I'm trying to flip it and create a new narrative and a new story. You know I, mean? I love that. And I, I'm so sorry that happened to you as a child. I, I mean, that's that's not anything any child or any human deserves to go through. And I'm glad mm-hmm. that you were able, able to just make it out on the other side. Um, have you have you ever been to therapy or like talk to somebody about it? Um, Not really. You know, I've 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 uh, around the first episode of depression. I decided to speak to somebody about that, but that had something to do more so with, like I said, I was I was I felt trapped by expectations of my mother versus what I really wanted to do. But as far as the abuse, no, I've never talked to anybody about that. Um, I probably should, but um, I've kind of allowed uh, music to be my therapy if that makes sense. Um, I've it does. Exercised, yeah, I've exercised those demons out through the music, you know what I mean, over the years. So not to say that I wouldn't go to therapy. I think it's fine to go to therapy. I haven't. Um, I've thought about it in the future. Um, but no, I, I haven't. I haven't. Um, but I've allowed music to be my therapy. It's funny. I um, I highly encourage everyone to, you know, try it and to go to therapy. And granted, that's even coming from a privileged place because it's assuming that you have health insurance that will cover mm-hmm. the cost mm-hmm. of therapy because mm-hmm. it's expensive. Mm-hmm. It's um, very or, expensive. Yeah, it's, it's not cheap. Um, but, you know, I was a person who never felt like I needed therapy. And my mom had a therapist growing up and I was like, oh, that just means you're crazy. I'm not crazy. So I don't need that. Um, but I was, mm-hmm. I'm happy that I also had a mom who told me that like, Hey, I take anxiety medication and I go to therapy. So I like, even though I had some preconceived notions about it, I was still 
kind of introduced to it being okay for a black person or a black woman mm-hmm. or just for anyone to, to go to therapy. Um, and my first couple sessions was mostly me trying to tell the therapist why I didn't need therapy. I was like, I know myself, I'm good, I'm whole, I'm this, I'm that. Um, but there were there were a lot of things that I didn't realize subconsciously that I had ideas about, even for me. Like, I thought that, like, being sad and breaking down was weak. And she was like, where did you get mm. that idea? Like, who told you that sadness was weakness? Um, and we can we can work on ourselves to the extent that we know our issues. But some of our issues we're so blind to because we're living with them every day. Um, it's mm-hmm. like having something on your face, but not looking in the mirror. Like there are just certain things that we can't see. And it's really nice to allow like an objective person on the outside to kind of point out things in ourselves that we that we don't always notice. Again, that's definitely coming from a privileged pr- perspective. And I always make sure I I say that to people because I've had friends who are like, I would love to try therapy, but it's $150 a session and you're going to need yeah. at least 10 sessions. So I don't have the right. money for that. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we're young and we black. And so, you know, when I was young and, you know, younger, like younger, 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 like, yeah, like I, I, I didn't have $150 just to give to a therapist to sit there and talk about my problems. You know what I mean? I didn't have health insurance. You know what I mean? When I left, when I left, my regular job in New York when I finally went full throttle with doing music full time, like I lost my benefit. So of course I didn't have health insurance, so I couldn't afford therapy if I wanted to, you know what I mean? So, and I think a lot of black children, like I said, you know, maybe the ties are changing because, you know, I think uh, there are a lot of African-American families that are doing better financially today than they did 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So, you know, it might be an option for some people to have that therapist. But, yeah, we don't we don't always have the money. We don't have the health insurance. You know what I mean? So, yeah, that's that's one thing for sure. To kind of and um, kind of closing and wrapping up, we've had such a great conversation. I feel like I could talk to you forever. Um, what advice would you give to, you know, students who are graduating college and trying to navigate, you know, what comes next and what am I going to do? And they might be dealing with pressure from their parents to do something that they don't want to do, but also having to navigate like the realities of paying bills and needing health insurance. Mm -hmm. Uh, What, Mm -hmm. what, what advice would you give to them about, you know, in quote unquote, dream chasing? Well, you know, this is we're living in a different time now right because of what is happening in the world now with the you know COVID-19 the pandemic so it's a different perspective right because when I came out of college I had you know when I was done with school I had graduation you know what I mean because we could graduate so it's a new reality for this generation because you know they didn't have their graduation you know there's a lot of uncertainty because you know, people older than them have lost their jobs. So if they've lost their jobs, then they might not get a job. You know what I mean? In this new climate that we're in, we, we, we totally have entered a new world. But if you are able to dream chase and you are able to still pursue a career in whatever your dream is, because whatever's happening right now, we're going to come out of this. Like it might not be exactly the same and the virus might not disappear, but we're going to go back to somewhat of a normal. So that means you still have to be ready for whatever you wanted to go after coming out of high school or coming out, out of college. Um, I don't let, I would, I, the advice that I would say is like, don't let anybody tell you no. You know what I mean? Like your twenties, you're meant to make mistakes. You know, if it doesn't work out, okay, that's fine. Find a new passion, find a new dream. Um, but just because it's not working out at that moment doesn't mean it will not ever work out. So some some things hit you in the face and it's like, this ain't for you. Clearly this ain't for you. But sometimes it's just like a matter of getting over hurdles. So I would give advice of just saying, don't, as cliche as this may sound, don't give up. Like, don't listen to anything anybody has to say. Uh, if they're not cashing your, if they're not paying your rent and taking care of you, don't pay them no mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're the one who has to wake up with yourself every day and look at yourself in the mirror. And you know, I have um, an old friend of mine who um, 
he wanted to be a, fil a filmmaker. And he was so scared of not having stability and a check every two weeks that if the fear pushed him into changing his major and getting a steady job. And he regrets that now. And that's, you know, 15 years later, he hates his life. And he tells me, he told me before, he respected me so much because I I, I chased after my dreams and I didn't say, I let no one tell me no. So I say to people as a word of advice and wrapping up this whole conversation, just don't stop. Like never give up. Like believe in yourself. Try to find your tribe of people that will support you, be it family or somebody outside your family. And like just have tunnel vision for that for that goal, man, because it's possible. Like it is it is very possible. You just have to stay steadfast on the plan, man, and you will make it. Like you can reach your goals. And if you want to aim for the moon, you might just land in the stars and that's okay too. But you still are closer to your definition of your dreams and your reality. Because for every one person who keeps going, there are 10 people who stop. You know, so, so don't true. Just, just executing sometimes will put you ahead of like 90% of the game. Yeah, yeah. Just keep going, man. So that, that's my advice. Well, thank you so much um, for taking the time to chat today. Again, this was an amazing conversation. I'll make sure we include your socials so, uh, in the bio so everybody can um, find you and potentially work yeah. with you. And is yeah. there anything thank that you, you want to kind of like shout out or promote like while you um, have the option? No, I just want to say thank you for, you know, giving me this opportunity to, to share my story and my experience with your platform and your audience. Um, you know, I think what you're doing is really important. These are conversations that need to be had. Um, just, you know, as far as what I have going on right now, you know, I have a new single that's I myself as an artist that I'm putting out on July 18th. It's called Minds. Um, not sure when this is airing, but it might air before or after, but it is by July 18th. It will be available on all streaming platforms. Um, look out for my EP at the end of this year. And you can find me, my name is Maurice, and you can find me at Maurice Funson, M-A-U-R-I-C-E-F-O-N-S-O-N, on all um, social media platforms, IG, Twitter, TikTok, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> hey, I'm going to have to follow you on TikTok. Yeah, I, I, my, my TikTok is low, man. I got to get my TikTok game up. You know, I, I'm starting to feel like an old man, like, oh, what's a TikTok? I don't know. You know what I mean? Like. But we're working on it. We're working on it. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to your projects. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you. You all have a good day. Just be honest. 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 Just be honest.